battle in the heart of Alabama caught our attention. Coal miners in one community, they've been on strike now for months. Working as long as 12 hours a day, seven days a week, in some of the most dangerous conditions. I really think that the labor movement is the single greatest force for democracy in the history of the United States. The story of Alabama is a story of not just resilience, but of militancy. I If we ain't all free, ain't none of us free. You're listening to Alabama's only union talk radio show, The Valley Labor Report, with Adam Keller and Jacob Morrison. All right, folks, welcome to another special episode of The Valley Labor Report. My name is Jacob Morrison. I am running this ship solo today, and I have with me independent write-in candidate for governor jared budlong jared uh starting off let's just introduce yourself to the audience who are you what uh what do you do and um why are you running for office and why are you running for office as an independent so we've got a lot there um walk us through that yeah. So my name is Jared Budlong. I live in Daphne, Alabama, and I am I'm sick of seeing the way our state runs things and treats its residents. So in October of last year in 2021, our state allocated 20% of our COVID relief funds towards building new prison facilities. At the time, they're aiming for three. They're actually aiming for three private prisons, and that got shot down eventually, thankfully. But we we decided to spend COVID relief. We were trying to help people in a pandemic or should have been and ended up putting money towards prisons. And that got me more interested in the inner workings of politics than I had ever had been in the past. And the more I dig, the worse it seems to get. And no one running at the time, nor anyone currently running, seems to want to say the hard part out loud, which is Alabama still relies on slave labor and doesn't want to do anything about it. In fact, wants more. So that's what got me to run. Really, that that's an interesting, um, you know that that that's an interesting thing to motivate somebody to run because it, it the you know thinking about prisoners and their well being is it's not often the 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 driving the motivating thing. It's something that people care about and it, and it, it's something that some people care about. Some people obviously right. care less, right? Um, but it, but that's an interesting motivating factor to to run for office and not only run for office, run for office, uh, run for run for governor and then not only run for governor, run for governor as an independent. So like we are, you know, many steps removed from kind of the norm. Right. So what is right. it about that issue that uh, that that was so motivating for you to do this? Well, first, we have to go back to what we what we were all taught in high school. I know I was back when I was in in school in the the late nineties, early aughts, and you know I was always taught that slavery was abolished. You know that's what we were told. Uh, they didn't they didn't have us read through the Thirteenth Amendment. Uh, they kind of just said, yeah, Thirteenth Amendment abolished slavery, and they casually leave off the except as punishment for a crime. And I didn't know that until very recently, and then to find out that we in our state are using that exclusion or that that clause to not only do the thing that most people are aware of, which is, you know, kitchen work, laundry work, and like the necessary labor to run the facility is run off of free labor, the inmates that are the incarcerated individuals that are inside. But we also create 
manufacturing roles that are managed by the state through ACI, Alabama Correctional Industries. And we pay our incarcerated individuals, the last report I could find at least had 13 to 25 cents an hour to build furniture, make chemicals, you know, do other various tasks that create uh, goods and services that are at least originally were in, were told or we were in, told that it was intended to offset the cost of the um, the prison system. And then to find out that that's essentially a lie because you can only sell those products and services back to other state agencies. So it's all tax money, no matter what that gets spent on these things. And it's just the more I the more I dug, it just got worse and worse. And to know that one thing that people don't think about, and this is kind of what triggered it, is that we are all essentially one law, whether it's a new law, an existing law that we're not aware of, or a, a previous law that now comes back into play, which we found recently with Roe v. Wade we're all one law away from being a criminal and depending on, you know, what law that ends up being, you could end up in prison and then it's not your choice to leave. Like you have no say, especially in Alabama. Right. And the, you know, this is something that it, it, it would be nice. I think if we could say, you know, j just for the sake of, uh, just for the sake of humanity, we should be treating other people well, but, but as a, as a practical matter, as a practical matter to subject criminals, you know, quote unquote, to this egregious treatment is not good for the rest of us because right. we know that, what is it? I, you may know that because it, it seems like you're deeper in this issue than I am, but it's something like 95%, 97% of people in Alabama's prisons are going to be back out on the street, right? And so and and that's the way that even the most hardened, you know, like I hate criminals, tough on crime guy out there, he's not going to say that you should do life even for for violent assault. Even if you you shoot somebody and you blow their knee out, right? right. They're not going to say you should do life in prison for that. Nobody's going to say that, right? And that's Very and that's few. And, and and that's a terrible that's a terrible thing to blow somebody's knee out right but but right. you know the proportionality i think is important and proportionality would dictate that 97% of these people are going to be back on the, out on the streets at some point and so how are we preparing them to reenter society well we are preparing these people to reenter society as gang members as drug addicts as people who can't get gainful employment because they have a felony on their record i mean the whole right. system is it, it is not designed to help the people who are accused of crimes or anybody else for that matter it's just right. designed to oppress people yeah, it's a it's a punitive system and that we have we should have learned in the last three or four hundred years that that doesn't do anything because we have been putting more people in prison over those years. Mm. Now, that it ebbs and flows. And I'll you know I'll admit that in our state, we we saw a decline in incarcerated individuals for a bit and it went it started to, to go back up. Uh, and that's our you know, that's partially due to our recidivism rate, which you mentioned people leave. But in Alabama, we have a 30% recidivism rate on average, and that's only counting three years post um, being reentered into be, being reintroduced into society. So if we only count the first three years, it's still 30%. So I, I would 
I'm curious. I don't think the, the data is available that the state will give us because uh, they're not transparent on a lot. I would be curious what that looks like at 15 or 20 or 25 years and see how high that rate is because 30% is bad enough. And if we're only counting three years, like it just, it should be, it should be obvious to the public mm -hmm. that our system isn't doing what we've been told it's supposed to do, which is corrections or rehabilitation. Mm -hmm. It, that's not what it's, that's not what it's doing. And I don't, I don't think that's what it's ever been intended to do. And I'll, I'll leave, uh, I'll, I'll introduce that with one stat. Uh, our first prison, as we know them now in Alabama, was built in Wetumpka in 1844. And four years later, they started selling the labor of those who were incarcerated. So since 1848, we have been selling incarcerated individuals labor as a state. Like I, it's never been about rehabilitation. It has mm -hmm. always been about labor. And so what is the uh, to to what degree can the governor unilaterally fix some of these issues? What are some of the things that you would do, you know, day one type stuff? And, and then what are some of the things that are going to have to be legislative fixes uh, that you would have to get broader public support for? Yeah, most of it's legislative. And I'm, I'm fully aware of that. And I try to make sure everyone that I talk to, especially those who are either inside right now or their loved ones, I, I try to let them know. I can't fix most of the things that you're seeing. And thankfully they're they're catching on, uh, but there are some things that I would like to do first day. And a lot of that's to address the current conditions. So right now, Alabama is currently being sued by the federal government, by the DOJ for the conditions of our prisons. And this is the second time that that has happened. It happened in the, the late seventies, early eighties for similar conditions. And we didn't fix it on our own then. So the federal government took over our prisons back at back in the late 80s. And we're in a very similar situation now where people are dying on a nearly daily basis from drug overdoses, um, assault. Uh, we've got unalivings, self-unalivings. I don't know how we want to phrase that here on the on the radio, but people taking their own life. And the danger isn't only to the incarcerated individuals. It's actually not safe for the the staff that work there, mostly because they are understaffed. They're actually the last count that I saw was about a third of the necessary staff is what they have on on hand. And that makes it dangerous for everybody. So the first thing I would like to do when coming in is actually fulfill the purpose and keep people safe there by, and it sounds extreme, and I'm fully aware, declaring a state of emergency because that's where we're at we have people dying on a nearly daily basis it's a very very defined group of people who are in danger on a daily basis so we'll declaring a state of emergency and bringing in the national guard to fill in the gaps until we can get it safe enough to then actually hire people through the normal channels and then let the national guard you know go back uh go back to doing their thing and let them go back into being reservists right they we don't need them there all the time or full-time but I want, I want to fill the gaps in staffing, but also have some extra oversight. You know, we want right now. There's a problem with corruption, and there's a problem with um, contraband making it into the prisons, and it was happening even at the height of COVID, which means there were no visitations, and yet things were still getting in. And from what I've heard from those who are on the inside and their loved ones, it was correctional officers, but also things being able to be snuck over a fence or tossed over a fence because there were staffing uh, shortages. They weren't seeing that stuff being brought in. And, you know, we have got to address that. And part of that is having enough people. So that's kind of what I want to do firsthand. Moving from there, 
a lot of is legislative. Uh, the board of pardon and paroles needs to be reined in as best I can. And that, um, that's a tricky one. I'm not sure, you know, how deep you want to go into it. Cause I, we could go pretty deep into this conversation, but I don't, I know we're, we're limited on time. So. Yeah. Well, so the, let's talk about, uh, some other issues. What, what are your, yeah. some of the other, um, some of the other things that, that you would be running on and that, and that you would want to be, uh, that you would want to see executed as governor, uh, let's say, you know, I don't know, top three other issues. Yeah. So the, the other two for me, for the most part, would be healthcare and education. Um, our healthcare in our state, everybody, practically everybody I talk to is aware that our healthcare is subpar at best. And we have to, at the very least, expand Medicaid from everything I've been able to find. Again, I'm a, I'm a guy from Daphne who decided to run for governor because I'm tired of our options not wanting to do real change. And everything I can find says the governor essentially can implement any federal policy that is meant for general welfare that falls under my, you know, on my plate. So why we haven't done it so far is a question you have to ask a different, uh, a different person, but I plan on expanding Medicaid as quickly as possible within my powers so that we can get, I think the, the most recent count I saw was 340,000 people could get coverage. And those are working class everyday people who work enough to not get uh, Medicare, but can't get in like privatized uh, healthcare insurance. They can't, they're in a gap. They're in that weird spot where, you know, you're just out of luck if you're in that place. So we've got to expand that to get people more access to at least the bare minimum. Like Medicaid's not perfect and it's not great, but it gets people some coverage. Hmm. And from that, the nice part, because people usually say, all right, well, who's going to pay for it? You know, 90% of the coverage is, or expansion is covered by federal. So we would be paying, you know, a, a dime for every dollar. And the nice part is that when we start implementing expansion, it frees up other existing spending that we are doing on our own as, on, as a state and paying for at the state level to relocate or reallocate those fundings to things like mental health care or reopening hospitals, hopefully in rural counties. Cause we've had, I think 11 hospitals close in rural counties or rural areas over the last, I want to say it was the last nine years or so. Uh, we've had about 11 close and most of those in the rural counties, they actually operate in the red. Like they are, right. they don't make money and that's why they end up shutting down. And part of that is people don't have the ability to go and actually be confident that they would not end up bankrupt because they went to the hospital. Uh, so that's healthcare. And then education is probably the the next biggest for me on my, my priority list. Education, we, our state does things very backwards from most states. So I can't Im increase our funding. That's actually a legislative concern, but we can allocate our funding more equitably. So the plan is to actually focus our existing yet subpar funding on schools that need it most rather than the, the arbitrary system that we have set up where we take, you know, an average number of students, take an average of what those students might need and say, here's your budget, figure it out school board. And we don't account for little nuanced things like, oh, you know, there is a, a higher percentage of English lear learning language, uh, English language learners in this school. So they might need more funding for an extra teacher or an extra, um, mm. uh, what is the the term for them? They are hey, uh, they, there's a it's a para um, paraprofessional, right? So it's it's mm. like a teacher aide, somebody like that, and give extra funding for those, or for you know an extra librarian or extra IT staff because you have kids who can't make it in for whatever reason. They need more rural um, 
uh, remote support through virtual learning or things like that. We just, we don't account for those directly. We do averages essentially, and just kind of let the schools handle it based on their budget and then force the rest on the local property and business taxes, which, you know, if you're in an area that's already poor, you don't have those extra tax revenues to then supplement what the the state and federal is giving you already. So it's, it just makes things worse the way we, the way we get our funding, but also how we allocate. It's kind of a, a double-edged sword hitting somebody. It's rough. One of the things that the Republican supermajority is trying to push through on education that we saw in the last session, and we will almost certainly see in the next session, and, and probably with uh, even more fervor than last time because it's at the beginning of a quadrennium, and so the pressure is the least amount that they will have over the four years because they are farthest away from an election, farthest away from accountability, is what they call school choice, what is in actuality school privatization, what is your, um, what is your if the school choice bill, quote-unquote, that they had last session passed, is that something that you would sign as governor? If I'm remembering it correctly, we're talking about school vouchers and giving people the ability to take their funding that they would normally get through the process we were just talking about and choose where they put that funding. Um, I would not sign it. It doesn't mean it wouldn't pass anyway. So Mm -hmm. this will be a shameless plug to like make sure you're voting for your local representatives, not just the governor, but make sure you're voting people in who who believe similarly to you and uh, in your local area. But no, I I don't support school vouchers. Um, I've I've gotten into a couple heated discussions about charter schools because I I see them as a stopgap measure currently. I don't I don't dislike the schools themselves. The concern is, you know, we're not putting funding where it should be, which is why they exist. So the problem isn't the charter school, it's actually the the funding issues currently. It's not, you know, we're 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 getting mad at the the band-aid that we don't like mm-hmm. the the look of or the feel of rather than the wound that's underneath. And I would rather focus on the the actual problem. So what are some of the what are the biggest contrasts that you would want to draw between yourself and since you're an independent candidate for governor, your two yeah. opponents, uh, Yolanda Flowers, the Democrat, and um, uh, Kay Ivey? Gosh, I can't. You don't have to almost. say your name; it's fine. <laughs> yeah, yeah, Kay Ivey, the governor. Uh, wh- yeah. What are some of the key things that that you would want to con- uh, contrast yourself between them? First, let's be fair to the Libertarian Party. They did something incredibly impressive this year. They got themselves on the ballot. So there is a third party that will be on the ballot. The Libertarians did it. They're on the sample ballot, and they have a governor um, candidate. Uh, I think okay. it's Jimmy Blake. Don't know a bunch about him, so I can't really contrast him, but I do want to be do, I do want to be fair. There are three uh, on-ballot competitors. I'll say gotcha, it that way. Gotcha. Uh, the Republican side, you know, they're, they're going to continue doing what the state's been doing. So, you know... <laughs> Pretty much everything I stand for is the opposite of what they stand for. Uh, they are the ones wanting to build new prisons with COVID money rather than spend it on our, our residents here in the state and help them in a pandemic. Uh, they are the ones that you know passed an abortion ban three years before it was even feasible. So they were way ahead trying to plan ahead for that. And you know they don't support our transgender youth. Oh, I, I would say they don't support our trans, transgender residents, but they've passed bills directly impacting our transgender youth. And, you know, all of that's kind of the exact opposite of myself. Um, on the the Democratic side, you know, I'm my frustration with the the, the candidate they currently have with Yolanda Flowers is it's a it's a policy side, right? She is or was pro-life. She's claiming to be pro-choice now. There's 
there are receipts, so to speak, to say that she was pro-life previously and had an endorsement from a pro-life organization. And then that that went down after you know she started giving different messaging publicly. And she has previously said that she would rather sever the I'm going to use this word if we need to restart this this phrase, let me know. But she would rather sever the the genitals from certain prisoners or certain incarcerated individuals uh, rather than like rehab. Uh, that's concerning. Um, yeah, I would say. And <laughs> with that. Oh, I just said I would say. Yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. And then the last one is, you know, the separation of church and state. Like, I, I don't believe your religious beliefs belong on the campaign trail or in your your functioning and in office, your actual position. And it seems like at least the Republican and Democratic candidates seem to promote their religious beliefs rather heavily. Uh, and at one point, Yolanda Flowers said that she she thought we had aliens invaded, invading our planet because of people's reaction to her um, religious beliefs being used on the campaign trail. And that was, you know, it's concerning. Not a, not a huge fan there. Uh, Jimmy Blake, I don't know enough about yet. Um, I have not seen a whole lot of his platform so far. I yeah, can speak to I... the Libertarian Party specifically, just or broadly rather. Uh, their their beliefs typically are a little too individualistic for me. They don't they aren't considered. They're not considering what the the good of the group. They're not usually looking at that. It's more let me make sure I have my freedoms, not mm. what can our state have as freedoms it's more you know make sure each person can have theirs and that that can lead down some very uh not good paths for the people around you yeah my freedom to uh lick the boots of the boss as fervently as i want and for as little money as they will pay me uh yeah it's my kind of freedom my freedom to die because i don't have health care is my my kind right. of freedom um, <laughs> if you're yeah, the, if you're the, curious about the weird the weird ways that can play out just look up libertarians and bear city just go look that up okay. anybody's listening if you're not aware go look that up and you'll understand where the the breakdown happens when you're worried about personal freedom but not worried about the good of the group that Yolanda Flowers situation was really frustrating to me. And, and I think, you know, I have less of an issue with people you like with people being on their sleeves about their religious beliefs, maybe than you do. I, I you know, but like I'm totally fine with people saying, you know, my faith motivates me to do X, Y and Z and, uh, you, you know, whatever. But the the thing that that is that is an issue for me is is that she was anti-abortion she i mean i think i i'm almost certain there was an explicit i'm pro-life quote unquote and like you said she was endorsed by democrats for life a pro-life organization and you know like it's less that it's you know it's less that it's it's uh inspired by her religion to me as that is bad <laughs> and it's it's not rooted in anything except because there's no other justification other than a religious belief that that it's bad to have an abortion to outlaw right. abortion that's the only justification that you could have for it and that's why she was opposed to it and and then there's this frustration that i had of her um of her backtracking on it like we're all idiots and we didn't just see everything that happened you know it's if if you're an anti-abortion democrat just be that and own it and and right. 
you know, I'm sure that I'm sure there are lots of anti-abortion Democrats. You know, if that's your platform, own it and let us decide, you know, don't treat us like we're children is is it was very yeah, there's. There's an entire group that previously endorsed her right, of those right. people. So, you know, uh, they, they have a group. Stick with them. Yeah, I. Uh, and it's not that I have a problem with people having religious beliefs. That's fine. But the the level of how often it was used on on everyday posts throughout mm. the, her, her campaign was kind of the frustration point. You know, it was it was consistently in there rather than. Uh, a you know my beliefs dictate that i you know here's why i'm doing this because of my beliefs and what i you know what i believe it was more of like just felt like sunday sermon every day on mm. the campaign trail which was you know right i i know that we have a group of people in our state or groups of people who aren't of that particular faith and mm -hmm. it it doesn't it doesn't reassure them that I care about how they feel about things if i'm going to espouse my personal beliefs from the campaign trail like there are people who their their history has not been treated well by those that particular uh, belief not necessarily right. in recent history but it's not and there's a sore spot there and i don't want that yeah i wouldn't want that to be a, a concern so yeah her facebook posts were definitely pretty weird so um let's talk about some uh uh you know some union issues at the state level we had on the show some time ago uh tim james who was running for um, the Republican nomination for governor, mm -hmm. and he really impressed us with some real commitments that he made to support the striking miners. Um, I think that even at the time, I was a bit skeptical that he meant any of it, and I think that his actions since then have proved that he didn't. Um, but some of the things that he said were really... Um, the, the things themselves were really legit, and some of the things that he mentioned was that... Uh, the governor's office has the authority to investigate safety and environmental concerns. Um, right. And there are very much safety concerns with that mine. Some scabs have been hurt. Uh, there are very much environmental concerns. The Black Warrior Riverkeepers are now suing Warrior Met Cole because of an increase in pollution since the strike began. Um, and... The governor's office. The governor has the authority to do those investigations. The governor also has the authority to try to mediate a deal, to try to broker a deal. We saw, uh, we've seen governors do that in the past, and we saw Labor Secretary Marty Walsh do that for BCTGM members in the Kellogg strike some time ago, and we saw Marty Walsh uh, and President Biden do that with the rail strike. I think not as effectively as they did in the BCTGM strike. I think they gave too much to the companies, and I think that we're going to see some some rejections by the workers, and we'll see what happens there with the rails. But can we expect that level of action for the miners from a Governor Budlong? Yeah, I, I'm here for the people of our state and to make sure that they're not being, uh, our state isn't being exploited as a whole. And I, I mean that holistically not just the people but our our state itself so the example i've given since you, you bring up more you're met uh people ask about additional revenues and a it's not my not something i can do but if the, if it were pie in the sky and i had the ability to pick new places to get revenue from for our state to pay for things like education or increasing uh health outside of the savings from medicaid we talked about earlier you know I would look at things like Warrior Met, where they are not just exploiting our people, but they're also exploiting our state, our physical, natural resources, and taking a, a very large profit from the last quarter. I, you know, the last time I looked, it was 
I think 300 million that they had that had net revenue and they're still not wanting to um, effectively negotiate with those who have been with the company for long periods of time before it was Warrior Met and are making record profits. So, you know, I would be looking at things like let's let's maybe tax that company more or the companies like that who literally can't do this work anywhere else. They have to be here. They are taking our resources and profiting off of that without giving back to our state. They're taking that money out of state at that point to uh, to private individuals or private groups who own sh uh, shares and stocks. So I would love to support our workers to the best of my ability, including helping with those negotiations. And something we talked about, and I appreciate your input on this when we met um, at the the rally, the one year rally up in Brookwood. And, you know, I asked your opinion because I have not been actively involved in unions. I've never been a part of one. I know I'm learning more and more every day, but I asked what, you know, what's one thing you could think of off the top of your head. And you mentioned that there are times where state troopers are escorting scabs across state lines to bring them in. And no, let's not do that. Let's not use state property to, to prop up a corporation. Like let's help the people as best we can. Yeah, not only giving um, scabs escorts through the picket line, but picketing uh, or but ticketing striking miners who are driving in front of the scab escort at the speed limit. They're pulling these striking miners over because they're getting in front of an emergency escort, which it's not an emergency to escort scabs. I'm sorry, uh, <laughs> and not for the state. Yeah, for, <laughs> I mean, they're not traveling with them from out of state, but the scabs themselves are out of state. And, you know, the the idea that you could get a ticket for going the speed limit is just yeah. insane. Well, it's, this is a, uh, and you may want to cut this later. I don't know if it's going to, you're not going to like it on your show. But we, we have to be reminded that the police aren't actually here to protect the people. Like, they're not here for that. That's the, the Supreme Court of the United States has ruled on that multiple times. Uh, it's, I think it's little, was it? Little Castle versus Gonzalez is one of them where, you know, the, the decision was, yeah, they knew they were in danger, but they didn't have to. They don't have to protect the people. So we have to keep that in mind when we think about police at any at any level. Yeah, we're, we're not going to have to cut that because that is a that, that's something that we have talked about a few times. Um, cool. Talking about how the police, the, the national leader of the quote unquote police union um, is on local radio in Huntsville caping for a literal convicted murderer who <laughs> who was a member of the Huntsville police force there was a Huntsville cop who was convicted of murder is this uh, the the one where he the, he shot somebody in the face with like a shotgun is it this yes. one yeah the suicide yeah, okay. one he was convicted of murder and the uh the fraternal order of police which is the largest uh, police association in the country they're still backing him they're still backing his case they're appealing it and the yeah. leader of the national organization is on local talk radio here in the area talking about how it's so sad that Cops can't go around killing people all the time. It's right. it's insane. It's insane. And and of course, they're the only union, quote unquote, that's ever going to physically violently break a strike. Right? right. There's no no other union is going to do that. But cops are more than happy to. And our listeners understand that. And our listeners know that. So, so the national. Um fraternal order of the police, the person who's speaking isn't from Huntsville. He was just in, in Huntsville speaking because of the, the incident, correct? He called into the show to talk about yeah, the okay. incident. Yeah, 
I was, I was saying if he's from here, that was that was news to me. But no, okay. no, no, no. My I I don't know where he's from, but it's not my understanding. I was not. I'm not aware if he's from. I don't think he's from. Gotcha. Here. Yeah. So, I just want to make sure I wasn't misunderstanding the statement. Cool. Yeah. No. Sorry about that. So one of the things that um another thing that Governor Ivy has done recently is um she has lobbied against project labor agreements. Um, and now project labor agreements are something that the, uh, the they're, they're agreements that either the gov uh, either the government, uh, if it's a government project or a private company, if it's a, if it's a, you know, private construction project can enter into right. with trade unions to set standards for safety and wages and all this type of stuff before a project starts so that we know that, that, you know, through this project, these are the standards that we're going to have. It's a, it, it's like a collective bargaining agreement for a project, Right. And uh, the state of Alabama has long ago, long ago said we are not doing project labor agreements. And I think that we are seeing that, that uh, one thing that we've seen recently where the city of Birmingham and the Alabama Department of Transportation installed LED lights under the highways in downtown Birmingham spent tens of millions at least five to ten million dollars on LED lights under the highway from this fly-by-night non-union contractor, and literally months after it, the lights are flashing. Some of them aren't working. Some of them are the wrong color, right? and that doesn't happen on union. That, that doesn't happen on on union sites. Um, and so, would you, as a governor, lobby to reinstate the use of project labor agreements on state construction projects, and also? Would you lobby for private construction in the state to utilize project labor agreements as well? Unlike our governor, who literally made a trip to Japan to lobby against Toyota Mazda using a project labor agreement in their Huntsville location, uh, in, in, at their Huntsville plant, which Toyota Mazda ended up doing. They ended up signing a project labor agreement to their benefit and to the benefit of Alabamians who are working on that project now and receiving higher wages right. and have better and safer working conditions. But to no thanks of Governor Ivey, who literally was trying to lobby this foreign company to pay her citizens less and to be able to use less local labor. Um, what would you do on, on those two issues? State construction project labor agreements and private construction project labor agreements. Assuming that it is not <clears throat> against our against our laws, for for me to make sure that happens within my control, so I I want to be careful how I say things. I will advocate for them for sure. Um, whether or not we can implement them, there are there are things that our state has signed into law or put into the constitution at times that limits what our state can do. And uh, outside of those, yeah, I will advocate as best I can for ensuring that people have the wages they need to live in our state. Um, Cause we, we don't have a federal or sorry, we have to abide by the federal minimum wage because our state doesn't have a minimum wage. And that is something I wish I could fix. Um, I know that it is, it's a, it is a legislative problem at this point. Now, 2016, I'm sure you guys covered it at some point, but you know, 2016, our state decided to limit the power of lower municipalities or smaller municipalities and keep them from implementing their own higher minimum wage. We basically said, you have to follow the state minimum wage, except we don't have one, so you have to follow federal. So good luck surviving in our state. Right, right. 
Yeah, that that was very frustrating. Adam was actually involved in the Raise the Wage Huntsville campaign, um, and they were very much demoralized by that bill that came out of the legislature um, from people who ostensibly like home rule. Uh, <laughs> but so uh, grocery tax for yeah, against. Uh, we as uh, against <laughs> uh, <laughs> broadly speaking, if if it is something you need to live, uh, we need to make that as accessible as possible. I'm, be careful how I phrase that, but uh, you, I don't like the idea of people dying because they don't have money. Uh, that's, I'm not a huge fan of that. That seems backwards as a society to let people do that. So let's, uh, uh, as we're winding down, let's talk about your decision to run as an independent. Uh, what motivated that? Um, and and what what good do you think, are, are, are you hoping to... Um, bring about with your independent campaign yeah so i'll cl i'll clarify one thing um i have been running under the moniker independent because that is what our state paperwork says when you're trying to get your name on the ballot um, i am not a part of the independent party so independent with a lower eye uh whenever well, i didn't I can. know there was an independent party i just there, I... there is not in our state but there is a broader independent party and i'm not a part of that uh it has caused some confusion uh since okay. i started running but it was it's the label that the state gives us on paperwork so i wanted things to make sense whenever somebody started looking for my paperwork because i knew that it would be so it would be something people would want to do uh not just say oh yeah that guy from daphne's running they would want to look it up and make sure so i want to make sure everything i was putting out matched the paperwork so running as an independent essentially for me is an unaffiliated candidate i'm, I'm not affiliated with any major party um twofold when I decided to run, it was within a couple of weeks of the the ending of applying to run for a party. And I would not have been able to pull up the, I think it's 3% of the salary of the position you're running for. So in governor's case, uh, I think it's $2,500 or so that I would have had to raise to apply the the fee to run as a Democrat had I wanted to. And that wasn't going to happen based on the timeline. And second, I don't want to run as a Democrat or a Republican um, or Libertarian. I don't, I don't like the first two because their their parties don't mean a whole lot. They they are groups that work together that seem to be focused more on money than they are helping people. And to that same point, you can run as a Democrat as long as you sign a piece of paper. Uh, their bylaws, which don't get into a whole lot about things that actually help people like healthcare, uh, but they do mention being pro law and order. And you have to pay a, an exorbitant fee to be in their party in order to to play you know play their game. And that's about it. They'll let seemingly anybody as long as they will sign that paper and pay a fee to run as a Democrat. And to me, that doesn't. That doesn't mean anything. I don't want to be a part of that group specifically. I have people who do, and I support them and their candidacy, but I, I can't. Uh, I just don't believe either of those parties care about people as a as a structure, as a as a party. Individuals, I'm sure they do, but I don't want to run under either of those. Our state has 1.4 million people in 2020 that didn't vote at all, who were registered voters, could have but didn't, and 950,000 straight party Republican ballots. 590,000 straight party Democratic ballots, and then, you know, a, a, a smattering of mixed party, uh, mixed ballot voting compared to the 1.4 million. And everybody I talked to who said they didn't vote previously was because they didn't feel that either party cared about what they wanted. 
So I don't want to put a, a moniker next to my name for the potential, you know, clout or influence. If it's going to actually detract from the, the majority in terms of number of people per group, the, the majority that aren't voting in the first place, that doesn't show a sign of confidence in my opinion. So I didn't run under it. And what's your, um, what's your plan to get in front of those 1.4 million, uh, non-voters, uh, as, as an independent candidate? Cause uh, you know, one of the thing one of the reasons that people do run <clears throat> as a Republican or a Democrat, I think it happens less often in the Republican Party that, that somebody would run even though they're critical of the party. Generally, people, for some reason, who run as Republicans are true believers. Um, but, right. but, you know, there are people who run as Democrats that are, you know, I'm just using the ballot line uh, because, it, like you said, this party will allow you to run uh, basically no matter what. So I'm going to I'm just going to use it. And, you know, there's a, there's a reason for that, because a lot of a lot of, you know, it, it's you've got this this built-in base here um, and and then you can work on expanding it. And so by not running as a Democrat, you are, you're losing this built-in base or Republican, you're losing this built-in base uh, with the hopes of, of activating people who in many instances have never voted before or it's been a very long time. So what's the plan to, uh, to, to activate this group of non-voters, which is, uh, you know, to be fair, very, very large. Uh, very large, but also it's a it's a challenge. I'm not I'm not saying it's easy. I am saying I would rather do the what I consider the right thing that's harder than than try to go the easy way out for two reasons. A, it feels disingenuous just to you put a letter next to my name because it may get me some help. Um, and also, the people I'm trying to reach aren't going to vote for me if I'm with a, a letter next to my name. Like if I pick either of those teams, the ones I'm talking to won't vote for me. And there's people that are supporting me now that are on inside of both of those groups. It's not the vast majority, but there are people who, if I had signed on either of the other teams, there's no way they would be even talking to me right now. But because I'm not a part of their, uh, the other team for them, I'm, I'm an, a viable option at that point. It's like, Oh, well, I'm not, uh, I'm not contradicting my, my family heritage and my like my history and everything my family has done for generations by supporting you you're not a democrat or you're not a republican so sure let's you know let's get in that boat and, and see where we can go uh, how we plan on reaching everybody a lot of that because it's a grassroots campaign is digital outreach and you know the people we're trying to reach are 45 and under generally speaking so they are you know within within a decade or so of, of me and uh, at the top level, and then down to 18 year olds who are just getting registered. And a lot of that is online. Like I, people usually ask like, Hey, we haven't seen a TV ad. And I'm like, okay, well, like who else have you seen? Cause I've, I'm only aware of one person that's been running TV ads because they have lots of money. Uh, mm -hmm. I don't. So I will be doing everything word of mouth and digital. And then in person, when I can make those, uh, when I can make those events and things like that around the, around the state. Jared Budlong, independent candidate for governor. If folks are interested, how can they learn more and sign up to help the campaign? Yep, it's jaredalgov.org. So jaredalgov.org. Thank we you for your time. Thank you for your time. I appreciate it. Thank you. Thank you.